The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thank you for being here tonight. Does anybody else have this fingernail growth issue? Now, I have... uh, People say I'm crazy. Some people do anyway. But I have this thing where if I drink beer, if I have a couple beers some night, my fingernails the next day actually grow like crazy. Does anybody else experience this or is it just me? And um, I'm just, just before the show, I'm like, I just cut my nails. I just did, but they're they're out of control again. Um, I don't think that's, I don't think I'm making it up. I think there's really something to this. We have to have somebody on who knows what I'm talking about and can explain the signs behind it. And I mean, I know that fingernails and hair are made of, you know, a, a protein. And uh, I believe that protein is found in things like beer. So, I think there's truth to this. Anyway, well, this is not a grooming show. Uh, welcome to the show. This is actually a, uh, our Wednesday night program, which I'm excited about because we do History Behind the Haunt on Wednesday nights now. And we've uh, done a few places already. We've done, let's see, with a Cambry House, the Cambry House in, um, in Nouveau, Illinois. We've done Rolling Hills Asylum in East Bethany, New York. Uh, those are both great programs. And tonight we're going to visit the Ashmore Estates. This is um, another location that has seen some attention from the paranormal reality television shows. Plus, uh, they do a lot of really cool events out there. And again, one you know falls into this category of government buildings that were used for nearly a century and then basically abandoned, just like the Rolling Hills Asylum was. It was a it was a county poorhouse, an almshouse, designed for the indigent who couldn't take care of themselves. Back in the uh, you know 19th century into the early 20th century, they didn't have programs that would just pay people to do whatever they would. If they if you if you couldn't support yourself, you you would uh, basically throw your uh, your um, life uh, to the mercy of of the local government, which would be the county, and the county would put you in one of these facilities where they would feed you and house you until something better could be figured out. And those county almshouses were all across the country. And most of them are pretty impressive structures. I mean, if you know anything about 19th century construction in America, particularly when it comes to uh, public buildings like that, they built them to last a very, very long time, usually made of brick or stone. Very, very well crafted. In fact, you'd go into some of these buildings and they're just gorgeous. At least you can see that they used to be gorgeous. You know, amazing woodwork and and uh, beautiful, uh, you know, staircases and wide open hallways and a lot of times you know marble and stone pretty amazing stuff it's not the type of uh, thing we see built today for sure uh, and we've lost a lot of these buildings and that's one of the intentions of this particular segment and this particular feature on beyond reality is that start drawing attention to some of these places before we lose them if you're listening to this show as a podcast thank you for doing that please share the link with your friends we want to see our podcast subscribers uh, those numbers grow and uh, more people join us on the on the podcast portion of the show. But at the same time, I'd like you to join us on YouTube. Come find the YouTube channel because in addition to having just a, a wealth of uh, back episodes on YouTube, there's about 500 there. There's some special content. Plus, we have a live chat room when the show streams live um, there at 11 o'clock Eastern Monday through Thursday, sometimes Friday. So tonight we're going to be talking to uh, Robin Terry, owner of the Ashmore Estates, and it's our... Wednesday night edition of History Behind the Haunt, right here on Beyond Reality. Don't go away. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Joha. That's J-O-H-A-W. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Robin, thank you so much for joining me tonight. I'm excited about this conversation. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate uh, asking me to come back. So if you um, met somebody who had no idea what you were talking about when you mentioned Ashmore Estates, how would you describe it to them? What would you say it is? Um, usually what I tell people is basically just what it is. It's it's that place that your grandparents used to always tell you that if you don't stop it, you're going to send me to that poor farm, and that's what it really is, is a poor farm. Yeah, you know, we, th- those are phrases that are, that used to be used quite often. You know, you're going to drive me to the poor house or the poor farm, and we don't have those anymore. So a lot of people aren't even aware of what we're talking about when we use those terms. But they were real facilities that the government created to accommodate indigents, right? Right. Everybody, every county had to have one. It was basically it was all before the Public Aid Act. And uh, so you had to have this because there was no money for people uh, governmental-wise, and they had to have some place to go. So the easiest way was having these facilities that they would send people to that uh, didn't have didn't have the means to take care of themselves. Or maybe maybe they were borderline, really not needing to go to jail, but they may have needed to go someplace to, uh, to be taken care of. And so they'd send them to the, uh, actually the almshouses or the poor farms and, or whatever they called them at that point. And these would be locations that would take people that, A, didn't have enough money to support themselves, or B, maybe had uh, some mental illness, or C, maybe they were somehow disabled and couldn't take care of themselves. I mean, they would throw anyone in anything that uh, really couldn't survive on its own into these facilities, and it was just kind of a big uh, uh, mess of people. Right. Yep. That's exactly what they did. They, you'd have anything in these places from a from a four year old child to a a seventy year old rapist. I mean, you could have anybody in there, you know, at this facility because these were basically people that the the government and the local jurisdictions really didn't want to mess with. And, you know, it's almost like they were the has nots. They didn't have anything. They didn't have any money. They didn't have any way to get around. They didn't have anything to you know to to do with their life. And so they just sent them out here because they didn't want to deal with them, so send them out there. And I think you mentioned it, but uh, it was required that counties have these types of facilities throughout the country as a way to offer some type of assistance or to some some way take care of people that couldn't take care of themselves. This isn't an isolated place. This was all over the country. Right. It wasn't just like, I mean, Ashmore's out in the middle of nowhere, but that was every facility because the people that had the money that in town they didn't want to look at this, the, the low life, so to speak, the dredge of the life you know, out there. They didn't want to look at that. So they built these facilities basically out in the middle of you know, no man's land you know, where they wouldn't have to look at them. They wouldn't have to deal with it. They could just put them out there and let them do their thing and sit on the grounds and, and not, uh, not get in the way of anybody. So it was, it was kind of a sad situation, really, because they just put them out there. So basically put them out the pasture, so to speak, and just let them sit out there. Yeah, almost literally. And in a lot of cases, and I think it's true of Ashmore States, uh, they had a farm that they would have people who could work, um, I suppose, maybe to provide some of the uh, food that they would eat themselves. But I don't know if they ever took any of that stuff to market, but they actually had an operating farm. Right. Yeah, Ashmore did. It was, you know, 
know, the Coles County Poor Farmers would have started off with Ashmore State Scheme later down the road, but the uh, Coles County Poor Farm was the name of it originally. And, you know, it started out back, actually back in 1857, right around that time frame, and they did have a working farm of about, you know, close to 300 acres that they had livestock and cattle and, and farm, you know, they farmed their own, uh, their corn, you know, beans and stuff like that out there. They had the whole gardens, hogs. I mean, it was, they had at one time about 25 different buildings on the property that they used for the farm. It was a, it was a large working farm, and they did actually sell some of that stuff, but it was also maintained to use for their own, to keep it to people there um, that lived in the location for their own, their own usage to, uh, to support themselves. Where is this located? Um, you know, we've, we've mentioned the name a few times, but where exactly are we talking about? about one mile to the west of Ashmore, Illinois, and seven miles to the east of Charleston, Illinois. Um, on It's just off of Route 16, a small highway that goes through Illinois. And uh, it's kind of, you know, people are familiar with Terre Haute, Indiana a lot of times, or Indianapolis. It's two hours to the west of Indianapolis, or about 45 minutes kind of northwest of uh of Terre Haute, but it was, it's one of those locations that if you don't know it's there, you really, you won't see it because it sits back up off the uh, highway. And at the time when it was actually a working facility, there was so many trees in front of it, they were basically hiding it with the trees. <laughs> uh, so I guess by the description and by the towns that you referenced, I'm assuming it's a rather rural area. Yeah, well, Ashmore, Illinois is only probably five, 700 people. And uh, now Charleston is a little bigger because Eastern Illinois University is there, but even then, it's you know 20,000, 25,000 people, so it's not a real big community. And that's that's the closest town that's really close to Ashmore State, and that's seven miles away. Robin, what's the history of the area prior to uh, the uh, I guess American expansion? Is there is there a history of Native American activity or anything? Um, we've actually had people that came out and wanted to try to do some investigating as far as the Indians in the area, and um, we haven't really came up with anything. But we do know that they were out in that area. Um, Lincoln was involved you know, in Charleston. Uh, he was out in that area some as well. So you know, we, we know that there was a lot of a lot of people in the area that are from well known, and I think that the Indians did. There was a railroad that ran really close to the uh, to the the building as well, right down along Route 16 originally. And um, but we're, we haven't really got into a lot of the deep, deep history as far as the uh, going back to like pre um, poor farm era. You mentioned some dates. I think you said 1857. Was that the year that uh, the original building was constructed? The the building originally um, was it was around that time frame where they had another property that they they maintained and then they brought this one into Ashmore. Uh, Outside of Ashmore, then they built the property there. It was it was built um, like 1879 or so on the grounds where it's at now, and they actually had a small fire there when a, a young child was getting ready for breakfast one morning and her dress caught fire and she perished in the uh, from her from her burns and everything from the fire. But the building didn't. It it remained. It stayed there. Um, but then they actually came in and tore it down uh, about 1915 and then finished this one off in 1916. Okay, so the original building, was that a brick construction or was that a wooden frame building? No, it was a wooden frame building, the original yeah. one. Um, it was a pretty good-sized location and building. It was two stories, but it wasn't the, it wasn't the best kept. And like I said, they, nobody paid attention to it because they didn't want to go out there. But it was, um, when it had that fire, they, the fire was, 
at, at one point when, well, actually when Elvis Skinner died from the fire burns, and then 30 years later they decided that, gee, there's a lot of damage done in this building from that fire. Maybe we should do something different to it. And the, the thing that I always thought was really interesting with that, and most people don't say anything about this today, but you have to go back 100 years, is there's a woman that was assigned from the state that came down and basically told the county, you need to tear this place down and build a new one because this is terrible. Um, the infestation with rats and mice and vermin, um, there was people laying in their own feces. Yeah. She actually said that the barns were in better condition for the animals than the, what the, where the people were living. Wow. And, but I always thought it was interesting that this woman had enough power with the state 100 years ago yeah. to get this taken care of. Today, we, you don't think about that, but 100 years ago, that didn't happen. That's right. That's that's very true. Um, can you give us a, a basic description of what life was like if you were, quote, unquote, an inmate? I think, you know, I mean, they, they would have got up early in the morning, um, worked around the farm, and then basically came back and did their, you know, their breakfast and their lunch, dinner and things like that there. Pretty much went to bed and started all over the next day. They also used the facility for um, a a rehab situation, and I, the only article I've really been able to find uh, that talked about anything in the inside of the building, because remember, nobody wanted anything to do with these people, so there wasn't like the reporters were running out there, you know, and doing news articles and stuff yeah. like that. So, but there was one gentleman that, and I forget his name, but he was in, he played minor league baseball, and he messed up his leg and needed to go to rehab. And back then, I mean, they didn't have money for rehab back in the early, you know. 1900s and things like that. So they sent him out to the poor farm. He, he stayed out there for a while while he was rehabbing. And he mentions in the article that you know they had they, they, the facility was kept really nice. They kept it clean. They had uh, they had you know, nice meals every day. And he really talked up really about the place. He said it was felt like you were living at home. And he said it was it wasn't like it was um, some you know, boot camp or something like that, where they'd send people out and make them work their, their butts off out there. But he did say that they got up, they had to do the chores, they had to do things like that. Um, but it was a family. It was the people that lived out there felt that they were part of a family and that they enjoyed, you know, each other. And that was that was their group of people. That was their friends, was the only people that lived out there. That was their community. So the, the, the story you just told us, about what was the time frame of that? Um, he was out there, I want to say, around, I think it was like 1920s, you know, sometime frame in there, 1920s, 1930s. So you, you kind of referenced it here, and I'm not sure which of these visits, because there were a couple visits by uh, state commissioners, I guess. Uh, and one in 1902, they had a description of the facility that was not very complimentary. Right. What was what did they see? Um, they would have came out there, they would have... Basically, we've seen um, rats and mice running all through the place. Um, it would have been people basically had maybe the rooms were set up for maybe two to three people at that time. I haven't seen the inside. Like I said, there's no pictures really of any of these locations on the interior at all. But I'm, I'm just envisioning that they would have had rooms set up where, uh, for two people, and they probably had six staying in some of those at one time. And uh, yeah, they weren't taking care of it. It was just, it was just in bad, deplorable condition. And it's just was something that you wouldn't even you wouldn't even think anybody would want to live in, but they didn't have any choice. They, that was yeah. the only they had. Right. And then again in 1911, it was uh, visited again. And at that point, I believe it was determined, as you referenced, that it needed to be torn down and, and something else needed to be built. Right. That's uh, that's pretty much.
much around the same time frame that the lady came out there and pretty much told him, you got to tear this down and, and rebuild it. Because it had a lot of fire damage done to it. I mean, it wasn't where the, the structural from the fire that happened 30 years prior was going to you know, cause the place to fall down, but they never repaired any of the damage. And uh, it was just like it was just in such bad shape, and the county didn't do anything with it. You know, keep in mind, this wasn't the people that lived there's responsibility to make sure this building stayed in good shape. I mean, they probably kept it as clean as they could and all, but the, this was a county-owned facility. The, the county was the one that was responsible for this location and making sure it was done the way it was supposed to be done. And then uh, the new building, the construction started in 1916, I believe, and that was the building that we see today, or part of the you know part of the complex that we see today, the brick structure uh, that uh, is what we call now call Ashmore Estates. Right. Well, it, that was it was still Coles County Poor Farm at the time when they built it in 1916, but it was an all brick building when they did it because of the fire damage and all. They decided let's build this thing uh, basically fire resistive. So when they built it, the only thing that was wood in the building would have been the window frames and then the, the roof structure itself. Well, I mean, you know, I've always fascinated at these structures. And, you know, Ashmore Estates is one of them. I think of Penhurst Asylum, Rolling Hills Estate. You know, these are all facilities that were built about the same time, the early part of the 20th century. And they were built to last. These these structures were built solid. And uh, one of the problems with that kind of construction, and it's almost impossible to maintain uh, in this day and age, right? I mean, you, you probably know that firsthand. Yeah, it's, I mean, when it was built... You know, I always kind of walk through and just marvel at it because looking at how it was done and how it was built and just thinking that, you know, they, they don't have, like, the, the concrete machines where there's it's pump, the concrete pump trucks and all like right. that. They can pump concrete. These guys were having to – there was a wheelbarrows or, or carrying it up in buckets and whatever they had to do to get – you know, and it's all poured concrete floors and uh, throughout the entire building. And it's just – it's amazing how much work they had to do to it uh, to get it where it's at. If this would have been a wooden structure like they would have built you know, prior to it back in 1916, I'm sure it would have probably been torn down by now just because it wouldn't have lasted. But you know, they were actually smart enough to do the, uh, the concrete and block and clay tile that they used to, uh, to build the building. And I think that's the only thing that's kept it alive. Give us the um, the uses of the facility from the point it was built in 1916, that uh, that solid structure, to date, because it, it went through a couple of different uses, didn't it? Right. It was uh, when they, they closed down the poor farm about 1959. That's when public aid basically, you know, and I always tell people, it's like instead of coming out and working for your money, we're just going to write you a check. And uh, so that's what the government did. And, and I think some of that might have just been it was like it was easier to do that than maintain poor farms and things like that. Plus, as the population grew, they probably didn't have enough facilities to put people you know, like this. So, so it, uh, at about 1959, it shut down from being the poor farm, and uh, and then it was sold, and it was going to become a uh, it was a, a care facility basically for the uh, mentally insane, and in. It was never, a lot of people want to say that it was an asylum. It was never an asylum. Um, the biggest difference between the asylums and the mental hospitals is the asylums basically are not there to try to help you. They're just basically almost like propping you up in a corner and letting you live out your life there. Where the hospital, like what Ashmore States was, uh, they tried to take care of people and try to help them and make them better mentally as they could. So it, uh, 
it went through for a while there. It was just it became a, a mental facility that they worked with, and it, it changed hands so many times throughout there, just because they were trying to come in and try to make some to make it work as a private psychiatric hospital. That didn't work um, after about five or six years. So then they they opened it back up and they they turned around to try to make it a public care facility, and they were still having problems with that. Um, and then some other people bought it in '76 and pretty much tried to do the same thing. And uh, when Paul Swinford bought it. And he turned it, it turned into a public hospital for the uh, to uh, to help the mentally insane as well. And you know he was running into financial problems with that and red tape and everything. And he actually had it for a while. Then it uh, and closed it down not too much longer after he had it opened up. It was opened up like in the late 70s and uh, closed down around the middle 80s. So it wasn't open very long as that at all. So it closed down in the mid-'80s, and did it become vacant at that point and not used for a while? Yeah, it sat emptied for, uh, gosh, I think it was like 10 or 12 years. And then another gentleman decided to buy it. He was going to build a house in there. And he had all these you know, these grandiose ideas that I'm going to build a house, we're going to live there. But the problem was is that it sat empty for so long, the vandalism was getting so extensive, yeah. and kids were breaking into it, and adults were breaking into it just for, you know, trying to get in so they could kind of maybe experience something inside this old haunted building is that they'd heard. And um, and he just couldn't keep up with the vandalism problem. So he basically said, I can't do it, and sold it to get out of it himself. Uh, have you entered the picture yet, or are you, are you still some uh, buyers in between? Nope, I'm still a couple buyers out. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens next? After, when he sold it, he, it sat empty for a while, and then he sold it, uh, I guess it sat empty for about... 10 years, close to it, um, 8 to 10 years. He sold it to a gentleman, my name is Scott Kelly, who bought it, and he just, Scott decided just to turn it into a haunted house facility. Um, basically, the, uh, you know, the the typical haunted houses we all, you know, for amusement park purposes only. And so that's what he was doing with it. And he, he went in and built walls inside and did different things there. And he operated for about about 10 years that he operated as a haunted house. And um, and that's what they were doing. They were just, just doing that. Basically, it was an October-only type thing. He lived out there in the uh, mobile home on the property. But uh, but that's what they did with it at that point, was just a haunted house for himself. Almost seems appropriate in retrospect. Um, so, you know, these buildings like this go through all these different transformations. What do you think is happening and we're going to get into this a little more detail as the discussion continues. But as these these different uses come to play, what do you think is happening to the um, memory of the residents that have, in many cases, spent much of their lives and in some cases died there? Do you think uh, it's it's changing that spiritual connection at all as these changes happen? I think when, when it changed from being a poor farm to a hospital, uh, and then basically trying to be a resident, and I think when it, once it went to this this haunted house thing, I think at that point it was pretty much like we're giving up on anybody that used to live here. We're just going to make this a yeah. um, haunted house attraction and raise money from that, and that's what we're going to do. So I think that that did change things with the uh, the basically this the era and the the aura of the building itself. I think that was an issue that that really was out there and was causing some problems for things. Are, are you local to that area? Is that where you're from? No, actually, I live two hours away from Ashmore State. You do now, or you, you always have? Oh, I always have. Okay, so when did you first become aware of this place? I was out 
out there, I think it was September of 2012. Um, yeah, I think it was September 2012. I had a friend that contacted me that he was doing a, a public investigation out there and asked me if I would come out and assist him with it because he had so many people and they were doing like a 12-hour investigation. So he wanted to know if I would take like the back half of it to help him out with it. So, so I went out there to do it. And, you know, it was kind of one of those things where you walk in to investigate, but there's so much stuff in that building that you couldn't even investigate. And I told him, I said, I'm just going to go sit in the car, let me know when you need me, and uh, because you couldn't even find anybody. You didn't have any idea where they went because they'd wander through the building and there were so many little rooms and partitions and stuff like that. It just, it was impossible to try to to maintain and make a, you know, do a, a proper investigation with people to help them out. Uh, obviously, if you were asked to do that, you you had some already experience in the paranormal. When did that start for you? When did you take an interest in paranormal topics to begin with? Um, it was probably it's probably a little bit over ten years ago now. Um, I actually you know, I'm a little bit different. Um, I I live in an old movie theater, and uh, so it uh, and I had some people that came over and wanted to know if they could investigate it sometime. I'm like, yeah, I don't have a problem with that. I said I. I've noticed a few things going on in here anyway. And uh, so they they investigated the theater, and they came up with some stuff and came back and showed me. And so I kind of got involved with them because um, I thought it was pretty cool that they what, what I had experienced in the past, they were actually finding some things here as well. And uh, so kind of jumped in a, with both feet with them and started doing stuff with them and uh, and uh, been involved with it ever since. You live in an old theater. Now, did you, did you remodel it, or is it still set up like a theater? No, it, uh, it was... When I bought it, it was actually set empty for three and a half years, and uh, nobody had any use for the building. I'm in a small town that had the slope floor, so we bought it. Basically, I could put my office in the front is what the, the idea was, and I stored some cars and did some things in the back with it. And then um, a few years later, my wife, I told my wife, I said, yeah, we're here so much, I just live here. And so we built a two-story house inside the movie theater and uh, been living here now for 20 years or so. That's really cool, and uh, you know that's that's another thing. And I kind of opened up the program talking about some of these treasures that we've lost over time. And when I say treasures, I mean buildings. And one of the things we've lost a lot of are these uh, small town theaters, these old theaters. Uh, they're just disappearing, and they're being converted and, and or demolished or whatever it happens to be. I live in Cooperstown, New York, and there was a theater here uh, that uh, I think closed in the mid. 80s, maybe early 90s, and that was converted into like a little craft mall or something like that. But all the theater guts are gone. But those are real community treasures, and it's it's a shame to see them disappear. Yeah, you're right. They, they have been, too. I, I go to a, a lot of small towns. If I'm in there and they've got a theater, I usually stop in and talk to them a little bit and tell them, hey, you know, I, I own a theater myself. It's kind of cool to see you guys doing this and, and what they've done. So it, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting to see these small towns that some of the theaters still some of them are still up, but a lot of them, like I said, are torn down. And it's all because they've gone to the digital age and everything wants to be, I mean, they've got the recliners in the theaters and things yeah. like that now. So nobody wants to go to a, just a simple theater anymore and do that. But but we do stuff here with uh, some groups that come in. I've got, when I built the house, we decided to build a small theater room. So we've got a 31-chair theater room uh, that we built inside the house. And... Yeah, so we'll have some people over, or we'll have a group come in and do like some fundraising for them and help them out, and, or just show some, you know, October we may show some horror movies and just 
have tickets where we have 31 people can show up and stuff like that. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. All right, so you had an interest in the paranormal. You actually went and uh, helped out on an investigation at Ashmore Estates. There's some space between that and now, and that space includes you deciding you're going to buy this property. Tell us how that happened. Well, actually, the uh, when Scott Kelly sold the building at auction, um, I think it was like in January, February, someplace in that time frame of uh, 2013, and uh, he sold it at auction and decided to get out of it. The roof had blown off, and uh, he, he's just like, he was done with it. He wanted to get out of it. And uh, the, uh, the actually, the, the roof blew off in January of 2013, and then I guess it was May of 2014 or so. I'm sorry, no, it was, I get my dates mixed up, October. He sold the building and uh, at auction, and the guy that bought it contacted me because he I had a haunted house here in the basement that we did as a fundraiser to help our local emergency squad, and he contacted me about wanting to buy some props. So this guy came over, and I didn't really know who he was at all, but he kind of came over and picked out all these props he wanted. So and we were talking, and I said something about living here, and he said, well, hey, that's kind of cool. He's like, I, I didn't realize that you lived here in the building. I said, yep, yeah, been doing it for a few years now. So he asked if there any chance he could kind of take a, a tour of the building. So I said, yeah, we can do that. So we wandered through, and we're standing upstairs. And I said, so where are you, where are, you are you building a new haunted house or putting one in or what? And he said, well, I had one in Illinois. I'm going to build one in Indiana. And he's saying, I'm going to sell the one in Illinois. And I said, where is it? And he said, Ashmore States. And I'm like, really? You own Ashmore States? He said, yeah. And my wife's like, oh, crap. You know. <laughs> <laughs> because you know, I talked about it in the past. Right. School location, and and I knew the other owner real well since he had a haunted house, and we had one here in the, in the theater. So we talked quite a bit, and uh, so I just told him, I said, you know, I'd love to come over and take a look at the building sometime. So I went over and and uh, went over on a Sunday and wandered through the building, and you know, it was one of those times where most people would have probably opened the front door and said, I've seen enough, yeah. and walked away. <laughs> Yeah, but after owning the theater, and this place was a mess itself, and I thought, you know, I started looking at everything. I'm like, this is all cosmetic stuff. This is a dumpster. You know, you just throw it out a window, get rid of it. And I'm so I'm looking at the structure itself, looking to see if there's problems. And I'm like, it's just a bunch of junk in here. That's all I see. I really don't see any other problems. So, um, so I'm walking through, and then actually when I got on the second floor, I'm walking down the second floor in the hallway, and it was fairly clear as I walked down the hallway. And I'm about as sensitive as a rock, but there was there was something there that said, you know, buy our building and help us. And it wasn't like that they wanted help the people that were still there, the spirits that were there didn't want help for themselves. They wanted help for their building. And I, I have a friend of mine who's a, a psychic medium, and he said, you know what it was? He said it was probably people from the theater, since, you know, the spirits that are here at the theater were Said, they travel with you all the time. They're always with you. He said, they probably were with you over there when you looked at Ashmore and were telling the other ones, you should see these in our place. And uh, so and uh, so I think it was kind of kind of something along that line that, you know, that uh, so we walked out and I, I just I, were on the way home because I got a two-hour drive home and my wife said, just buy it. And I'm like, what? She's like, you know you're going to, just buy it. You know, you, you, you've described uh, an exp several experiences that I've had. I've, I'm, I'm the same way. I've got a certain romantic element for these older buildings, and I walk in, and anybody else would run, go, you know, turn turn around and run away, say no way. Um, you know, I've 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 done the opposite. I've bought some of these old buildings and tried to restore and, and make a difference because there's a certain um, calling 
And I don't know what exactly it is, whether it's a spiritual calling or it's a, is something that's, you know, innate in, in people like you or me, um, where you just, it's, it almost breaks your heart to see them just, uh, you know, fade to time. Yeah, and then you see people that get a hold of them that do, you know, things with them that, yeah. you know, and I don't have a problem with the haunted house I did that they were doing, but at the same time, I mean, that's what they're doing with it, that's fine. But at least go back and try to do something with the building itself. And, and nothing had been done with that building um, since basically the day the hospital closed it. Mm-hmm. And it just deteriorated, deteriorated. The windows were a mess. They were all rotted out, the whole shot. I mean, there was birds like a thoroughfare in there flying in and out of the place all the time. Uh, because there was no way to stop them. There was no screens, no windows, no plastic, anything over it, and it was just it was just sad condition. And but they hadn't put any money into it, so you know that's when I bought it. I said, you know, we got to fix all this. And uh, you know, fortunately, I had a lot of help from the paranormal community that came out, um, especially the first six months I owned it, and just pitched in and helped me do stuff out there. So it made a big difference. What did you do first? What was the first order of business once you bought it to, uh, to you know, to get it on the path to recovery? Um, about the, the first thing I remember doing is I opened up a window in the back that was boarded up from the inside. I ripped all the plywood off because it was middle of the day and you couldn't see anything in there because it was, some of the windows were covered with wood, some of them weren't, and so it was nice to see a little light. So I opened up the window, and, and I did that. It's like eight bats fell on top of me. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, it was like, welcome to Ashmore. And uh, you know, so we got rid of them out of the building. But then we uh, um, we started just basically cleaning it, gutting it. In fact, the, the guys that came over to help me that weekend, um, we just started on the second floor because we were on the second floor. And we threw out enough lumber, just lumber to burn to get rid of it, you know, hanging out of the building. Uh, that it came up to the second floor window by the time we were done that weekend. Oh, wow. We it all out of there. But we brought in five dumpsters and filled up five dumpsters, and I had people come over and said, do you want to save this? You know, I said, look, if you wouldn't put it in your living room, I don't want it. And so we are just starting throwing stuff in the dumpsters, out the windows, into the dumpsters, and we'd fill one dumpster, and I'd call the company and have them drop another one off. And, uh, and we just did that until we filled, like, five dumpsters, and these were, like, dumpsters you could park cars in. And... Uh, get rid of it all so we we cleaned all the junk out and then at that point we started working on the roof because there was no roof on the building when i bought it because it all blew off and the people that owned it after it blew off never bothered to try to fix it so there's always water it was the only thing i say that there was a the attic floor was concrete mm-hmm. so it that really helped a lot because not all the water was coming in every time it rained but you're still getting a significant amount that came in and so we put a roof on that, got that done, and then we replaced all the windows in the building and put windows in. So I was pretty happy because I was hoping to get the roof on by September. I bought it in May of 2014, and I was hoping to get it, the roof on it by September. We had the roof on it by June, and I was hoping to get some of the windows done that year or at least boarded up, and we had all the windows in the building by October. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so I, cause, I mean, I was figuring I had to do everything myself, but we had, I had so much help that we just got things done quick. And I think there was 83 openings we had to put in windows or, or board up or whatever we were going to do. But yeah, there was 83 openings we had to fix. Wow. Um, when you purchased it, uh, you must have had a vision for it. What was your vision? Um, being involved with the paranormal, my whole idea was basically make it almost like a, a paranormal palace, you know, where people could come out and investigate and enjoy themselves and, and have a good time with it, but then make it convenient for them as well. 
And when I bought it, there was no electricity in the building. There was no water in the building. There was no windows. So we fixed the windows. We got the electricity in there. The following year, we actually I managed to get bathrooms. We put bathrooms in the building. And then we actually put one outside, too, because we've got some areas outside where people stay. And, you know, that was the whole thing. It's like trying to make this better than it was because, you know, it was people come out and investigate, and they get out there, and the guy that owns it would tell them, well, the, the closest bathroom is seven miles to Walmart. Oh, man. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I can't do that. That's, that's not right. That's not the way you do things. So so we ended up doing this, and, you know, we put a ton of money into the place. And we've taken now, you know, just for the paranormal side of things, we've – you know, there's the biggest thing that most people hate doing when they're setting up paranormal equipment is setting up their their infrared cameras and having to run wires up three floors and things like that. So we pre-ran all the wires, and so they're already there. So basically, somebody just takes their cameras up there and puts them on the floor, plugs them in, plugs them in down below, and they're done. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's a yeah. nice that's a nice feature. As you were doing all this work, did you start to do uh, experience anything paranormal? Um. I did myself, yeah. I, I was I was out there um, one time just by myself, and uh, it was in May of 2014, and I was on the third floor, and I was up there um, hooking up with electrical, and something just kind of came across me that it's like you need to leave, and you know, and I don't think it was anything demonic, as some people like to sit there and tell you know the demonic stories about Ashmore Estates on TV, but um, it was nothing demonic, but there was something. That was kind of telling me, trying to push me out the door and make me, you know, want me to leave. And after about an hour of fighting this feeling, I said, all right, fine. If you guys are having a party and I'm not invited, I'll leave. Because I don't think it was anything malicious. I think it was just something almost like protective. And and it could have been basically Like pr- that I, protective of you? Like trying right. to protect you? Okay. Yeah, because I'd been there for a, for a couple of weeks already and it just happened. And I... You know, and I thought maybe it was like maybe I, you I mean, I do a lot of wiring, so I'm not, you know, I'm real familiar with the hooking up electrical. And I mean, I've done the theater and then the entire Ashmore. I've done all kinds of electrical, so that's not a big deal. But maybe there was something there that I thought I was going to do something wrong, and that they did, they wanted me to to walk away from it. So, so I decided just to go ahead and take off the afternoon and left and, uh, and just walk away from the building that day. How many people? Um were housed in the building at any point during its history where, where you'd consider it to have been the max occupancy? Well, we had a lady that actually lived out there uh, when it was a poor farm. Her parents were the uh, caretakers of the location, and she would tell me that there was, you know, it varied a lot. So, you know, it would, it, the, the numbers were up and down. She said it was anything from 20 to 30 people at a time would probably live out there. Do, do any of the records exist? I mean, I know that in a lot of these cases, very poor record keeping was done, and in many cases, the records that did exist are gone. The only thing we have found some, we didn't find anything on the property, but I've gone through and had found some documentation and some old, uh, you know, some old newspaper articles and things like that of like people that had died there. And I thought it was kind of interesting in a way because you would have just thought that most of these people that have been just from the area that lived there. But there was people from like six or seven different countries, you know, that, that came there and came to the United States and didn't have anything when they got here, and they ended up out there at the poor farm. So it was uh, it was kind of interesting with all these different people that came in there. What are some of the uh, stories that visitors have shared with you of their experiences? Of course, I mean we have the the typical people that come out and see the shadows and you know the things like that, but you know we've. 
and, and I push this a lot, and I try to talk to people. Unfortunately, had somebody call me a while ago that wanted to do this, but I always tell people to investigate out there during the day. And most of them don't because they watch too much TV and they see everything <laughs> at night. And I said, you know, look at these facilities and think about when they were active. I said, this would have been a facility that would have probably been active from 6 in the morning to like 9 o'clock at night. And I said, so after 9 o'clock, everybody here was probably in bed. And I said, so it's a, you know, but, and that's what's happened. A lot of people come out there during the day and have experienced a lot of things. Um, I've had people that have seen a white figure walk down the hallways. We've get um, a lot of people that have told me they felt like a small hand grabbed their hand when they walked out a hall. Mm. And uh, we've had we had a lady that actually a few weeks ago, or actually last month when I or a couple months ago when I was out there with her, they had uh, they were sitting in, in the uh, the men's dining hall area, and she told me she's like she's you know she's a, a medium and she said I see a guy standing right across here in the hallway. You know, from us, right across the room here from us. I'm like, okay. She said, let me describe them to you. I said, no, wait, don't do that. Let me write down what I think you might see, and then we can compare notes. And she's like, okay. So I wrote down everything on my phone, and they were filming me writing it all down. And I said, all right, go ahead and tell me what you think you see. And she said it, and the guy that was shooting the camera was like, man, I'm getting shivers right now because everything you're saying, he wrote down. Wow. And uh, and I like doing it like that because anybody can agree with somebody. It's like, right. yep, we got people see it all the time. But when I when I give them my side first, you know, and, and kind of like hide it from them, so to speak, when I write it down and then flip it over after they've said whatever they've said, it's like, and they match, then it's kind of cool because that you can justify that then. Yeah, that's a level of uh, of verification that uh, goes a long way. Um, you've you've mentioned a few uh, apparitions and things that people have seen. Do you have any uh, names or personalities associated with any of those appearances that you uh, have found through any kind of research or or even maybe through EVP work or anything? We think the little girl that you know everybody that experiences this this young hand in their hand. We think that might be Elda Skinner, who died from the results of the burns from the fire on oh, the original yeah. structure. And the other reason I think is that might be hers, because there was a girl that lived down the street from Ashmore, about a, probably about three or four blocks, so to speak, you know, a quarter of a mile down from Ashmore, living in a farmhouse. And her mom would call me every once in a while and said, my daughter's been up late night in her bedroom singing. And I go in and say, what are you doing? She's like, I'm singing with my friend from Ashmore. And she's like, really? She says, yeah. She's like, she's like, I don't see anybody there, but she's got this friend that comes to visit. I'm like, okay. And I said, you know, I said, not to scare you. I said, but <laughs> the next time she's over and then she says her daughter, your daughter says she's there, can you see if your daughter can describe her? And she described her as somebody that was, a, she said she's a little younger than she is, which Elva would just turn, she almost turned five. She was just short of her fifth birthday. And this girl was seven at the time. She's like, she's younger than I am. And she has something like wrapped around her legs. Well, I'm thinking those were probably the bandages from the fire. Yeah. And then she described her as she had blonde hair, and her hair was in, in hair ribbons, which is kind of interesting because girls don't wear hair ribbons now. And, uh, in fact, her mom, she said that her daughter wanted hair ribbons to wear to school. She's like, I had to make them because you can't go out and buy hair ribbons, you know, like the little the little ribbons all that they used to put in girls' hair. She's like, you can't buy those now. You so she had to go out and make them because her daughter wanted to be just like this girl. And so it's, it's, I always thought that was really interesting when we have a seven-year-old girl that tells us so much about this young girl that comes down and visits her. And they were actually doing the, the, uh, the teacher at school said that they had to practice doing their, um, 
their stop, drop, and roll like they do in fires. And she's like, I practice that at home with my friend all the time she said, because she got hurt you know, with fire. And, and she won't let her mom burn candles in the house because she said those are bad, they can hurt you. And so there's so many little factors that led up to that. It's like we pretty much think that she's there still in the building today. Wow. I, then, how far how far down away from uh, Ashmore States did you say this girl lived? Probably three to four blocks, quarter of a mile. So you said the original property was 300 acres. Did Was that uh, site originally part of the original farm? Yep. In fact, actually, there was a barn there that was part of the original structure that just was torn down a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense. Yep. Yeah, she would have floated down there probably just on her own during, you know, during the, 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 barn or the farm days and things like that. So it wouldn't have been unusual for her to be wandering around down that way. It's always, it's always fascinating when you can make a connection between something that has been experienced paranormally and somebody who actually you know, lived or has a story to tell. That, that really uh, adds some satisfaction to the whole thing, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Now, the lady that lived out there that we talked to just actually last year that she came out there for a while with us, um, she didn't have any, anything as far as the paranormal side of things. She didn't want anything to do with that. She didn't believe anything of it at all, which was, I told her, I said, she didn't want to come out. And I said, that's fine. I, don't, I said, I want you to come out and talk about the history of the place. I said, because that's what's really cool to me. That's kind of why, one of the reasons why I wanted to buy it, because I think it's just a historical, you know, cool place. So right. We had a picture with, with a bunch of buildings that we never really knew what they were. And she was like, this is what this building is. This is what this one was, because she lived out there. I mean, that's what, you know, she lived out there with her mom and dad. And she said the like the structure as we know it is Ashmore Estates right now. During the summer, her family would move to the house that was on the same property because there was air conditioning in that house, but there wasn't in the building. So they would go over there and stay because it was cooler that way. But all the other inmates had to stay inside the building itself. A lot of these uh, these county poorhouses, poor farms, almshouses, whatever you want to call them, had uh, obviously deaths on the property, and they would uh, inter them in basically pauper's cemetery. Are there cemeteries on the property? We don't know of any on the property that's been listed. Um, actually, we just contacted by a cemetery board from the county a, a couple, two or three weeks ago that they wanted permission to come out there and look because they think there might have been one. Um, I do know that there's some people that think there is one on the corner, probably like the northwest corner of the property. But this lady also told me that she used to see somebody, you know, she was probably seven or eight years old when she lived out there. She said she used to see somebody late night, a lot of times out there in the middle of the field digging. And she had no idea why he was out there digging, but she said today she thinks that it may have been that she was he was burying someone out there in the field um, that passed away. Now, there is a cemetery, the Coles County Poor Farm Cemetery, is about about a mile straight across from the building itself, um, out in the middle of a farm field that's covered with trees and everything, and they won't really let you go to it. But we do know it's out there. We've got pictures of some of the stones and everything that were out there. It's just, it's not maintained, It's and it's off limits? Is that what you're saying? Right, yeah, it's not maintained at all. Um, and the farmer bought the ground, and I don't think he realized that that cemetery was there when he bought the ground. And it's just overgrown, and you know, I, I'm going to stop down and talk to him sometimes. I'd like to get down there and see if we can't clean it up a little bit if you'll let us. But I was just told that he just doesn't want anybody out there on the property. Yeah. Well, those cemeteries for for uh, any of these almshouses, do we know? Did they did they mark graves, or was it? I mean, I know a pauper's uh, grave isn't isn't anything that uh, may have been marked, but 
Do we know what they used to do? Yeah, they actually, the ones that are out there in this particular cemetery, they're, they're all marked. Uh, they've got the names, they've got the years, um, you know, some of the, uh, the months and days, things like that, that are all out there. And, uh, but yeah, they've got, they've got these all marked, which is kind of, kind of interesting because they yeah. didn't actually maintain the dates and everything on those. So as you've learned more about the property and you've put more time, energy, and, of course, money into it, um, what do you hope at the end of the day that people will walk away with if they, if they visit? You know, when they come out, I hope that they, they just realize some of the history of the location and they think about that and they go back and realize what people were like, what, what it was like back in, you know, 100 and, 105 years ago to live there at that location and, and what they had to endure every day. Um, as well as some of the people in it transformed over to hospital, they, they were almost like experimental cases out there because they did they did electroshock therapy treatments and everything out there during the hospital days. So again, I hope they walk away with a little more of history, of the knowledge of the place, as well as a a, a good day and had a had a just an enjoyable day visiting the location, even taking the paranormal side of things out of it completely. Uh, just as long as they walk back and think, you know, we had a, we enjoyed it. We had a good time coming out to this location. Do you think it's important to do this to help honor the memory of the people that uh, lived there over the years and, and some who actually died there? I think so. I think that's one thing that, that we've tried to do. In fact, on the, uh, the third floor of the building, we've got, I've got some, like, posters up there that I've got a list of some of the people that died there at the location. There's about 200 people that have passed away there, mostly from natural causes. But, you know, I, I call that my memorial floor because we've done that. We also invite people to that have, you know, loved ones or somebody in the paranormal community or something like that that passed away to bring a photo in and we'll all hang it up on the wall. You know, there's no charging like that. We just put it up on the wall for them um, just, you know, in, in memory of the people that live there or that they've known that passed away. We're talking with Robin Terry, owner of Ashmore Estates. I've got to change the subject just a little bit here because I'm really, really curious. This might be the most important question of the night. Do you really own the original mystery machine? <laughs> um, yep. Yeah, that's the, the one that was owned by Hannibal Bear Studios back in 1969 when they started the cartoon series. And, of course, we're talking about Scooby-Doo. That, that must be a real treat to take around and, and let people see. It's a lot of fun. A lot of people don't realize what it is until they start, like maybe reading the, some of the some of the banners we've got sitting out or something like that. Or I tell them about it because they just think it's just another painted van. Um, but it was it was owned by the studio, and it's kind of weird because there's a lot of vans that look really nice that people have done, but this one was actually painted because in the uh, basically in the back shop area of the building, they went back and painted it there at the at the uh, studio at Hanna Barbera Studios. And then just took it around to different events and doing stuff like that. Um, it was it was actually it, it was wrecked out in, in Hollywood, California area, and they took it into a, a shop called uh, Barris Customs. And George Barris did cars like Ecto ones, the Beverly Hillbillies, Batmobile. Um, he did all those iconic cars back in wow. the '60s. And so he had the van in his shop, which I thought was just kind of cool itself, just to have that in there. And he's got some little plaques that he put on there, and he's got a dash plaque that he signed to put on the dash plaque of the van. So, um, but yeah, it's it's a, it's a blast to take it around. We do a lot of stuff to help raise money for charities, including you know, like Lost Limbs Foundation helps amputee children. So take it out and do things like that with them all the time. That's cool. I mean, obviously, Scooby-Doo was a cartoon, so they didn't use the van in in the actual cartoon, but you're saying they used it for promotional purposes? 
Right. They would take it to different conventions or events like that, and they'd have like a, maybe a, a cast of Scooby-Doo characters with them, and and you know just to promote the cartoon. So that's what they that's what they did with it. And do you have a story about John Wayne Gacy? <laughs> yeah, um, fortunately or unfortunately, yeah, that's at the theater. Um, we kind of had a connection with him by mistake one time when we were doing the site called Newbie Nights, and I'll give you the really really short version of it. But uh, doing a Newbie Night here at the theater. And we had people I took through the building and everything, and we were going back and listening to some recordings. I always like to take people through, especially when they've never done anything like this before, and we listened to the recorders right then. And uh, three friends of mine there, Psychic Media, my wife decided to wander through the building, and uh, they came across all kinds of, you know, they were picking up on, uh, like, John Wayne, the Duke, you know, from the old, you know, the old Westerns and everything. Uh, digging clowns, a uh, jail cell. I mean, they're just, he was, they're picking about all kinds of stuff. So they sat down in our theater room at the end of the, when they were done walking around and trying to put it all together. And he's, you know, they're like, John Wayne Gacy's standing right behind you, Norma, my wife. And she's like, okay. She's like, I have no idea why he's here. And she's like, well, when I was in college, my roommate's brother was killed by John Wayne Gacy. Whoa. One of the victims. And there's two other gentlemen in the room with them. And they said, well, we actually handled all the paperwork when he went to prison. And then my wife said, well, you remember that armoire upstairs that you talked about that just had some bad vibes on it? And uh, the one psyche like, said, yeah, I know what you're talking about. It's like, that was owned by the attorney that represented Gacy. <laughs> and, and when I found out later that he had painted three paintings for her, and she used to keep them stored in that armoire. And... That armoire actually um, is locked. It, uh, when I bought it, it was unlocked. I brought it home. I refinished it. We took it upstairs, put it in our room, our living room upstairs. And when I got it upstairs, it locked, and I can't get it unlocked. And I've tried everything I could figure to, to get it unlocked, and it won't unlock. Um, a couple years later, I had another psychic came over, and he didn't even think about the story about the Gacy situation. And, but he'd seen him pop the stairs, so we ended up walking through the building, and uh, and he told me that he felt, and I didn't tell him anything about the armoire, but he felt that that armoire was where he was at. And he said, he's protecting paintings. I'm like, okay, there's paintings that she used to store in there. He's like, yeah, he said they're there. I'm like, no, they're, they're not there. I bought it. When I bought it, it was open. I, I cleaned the inside of it. I know it's there. And But he said he still thinks they're there, so that's what he's doing. So. Oh, wow. But yeah, we've had a lot of weird experiences with John Wayne Gacy throughout, you know, over some time frames with that. I probably should know better, but uh, where was John Wayne Gacy committing his crimes? Is it close to where you are? Three hours north. Oh, okay. And then he actually lived in Springfield, which is 20 minutes from me. Mm-hmm. And he lived, and what's really kind of weird is that, you know, just the, the coincidental situations of this whole thing, which is weird. He, when he lived in Springfield, he lived on Normandy Road. My wife's first name is Norma. Her dad's name is Norman. And... <laughs> There's probably 2,000 streets in Springfield, mm. and that's the one he lived on. Wow. Wow. It's amazing stuff. Um, so the website is ashmoreestates.net. Uh, anything coming up you want to let people know about? We, in April of this year, we do have a suicide awareness prevention or prevention uh, uh, that we're doing. Uh, basically, we're donating all the money to, to help the, uh, the awareness program for suicide. We've got Dustin Perry coming in and then quite a few other people that are going to be there as well. And um, we're just raising raising money for that. We do some public events each month. Um, we limit, you know, I don't I don't really do this for the money side of things. If I break even at the end of the year, I'm I'm happy with that. But-
but you know, so we've got we've got 12 spots that we we rent the place out. We have uh, for the public investigations, we've got 12 spots that we do each month, and that's it. We won't add to it. And uh, but you know, <clears throat> and then we do quite a few different fundraisers throughout the year, all to help Lost Limbs Foundation. Um, but that's you know, we've got a, kind of a smaller smaller thing going on this year. We don't have as quite as many events as we normally do out there, but we do have some other people that are bringing some events in that'll do some stuff out there. Just one more question uh, before I let you go. Uh, the, the facility obviously has been featured in some TV stuff. What what was uh, something that you actually look back on and, and uh, maybe put at the top of the list as far as being happy with? Um, you know, probably uh, the one, you know, there's, it's been on a couple of different TV shows, like you said, the, the major networks with Ghost Adventures and Ghost Hunters. Um, Ghost Adventures said they had demonic stuff. That's, I don't, that a second, found nothing, and which I don't believe that for a second either. So I think the probably the one that that stuck out with me the most, and it wasn't actually on national TV, but Brad Clean came out and did Strange Curiosities, some call it home. He did a whole episode out there on on uh, Amazon Prime, and it's really cool because he caught some amazing evidence in the boiler room with some cold spells that came through. It went from like, dropped 26 degrees down there in the water room when he was down there wow. uh, doing some stuff. He also felt the little girl um, as he was walking down the hallway, which other people have felt. And you could tell just if, if anybody that knows Brad knows he's, you know, the type A male, you know, figure. And he's breaking up and almost in tears as he's coming down this hallway. So that was probably, you know, probably my favorite thing that's been done out there as far as any type of television or video stuff. Is that something that people can see now? Yep. Excuse me. I think it's, it's still on Amazon Prime uh, under Strange Curiosities. Some call it home. And actually, not to back up, but also on on the same Strange Curiosity, you can you can watch the Killer Coincidence, which is what he did. He came up and did one here at the theater when I told him the story about that. So he came up here and did something with the theater with the, the Gacy situation. Oh, awesome. Okay, great. Uh, Robin, thanks so much for being with us tonight. Uh, we appreciate you uh, telling us the story of Ashmore Estates, sharing all that information with us, and we hope to have you back on again sometime. No, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.